This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and on this occasion we have two accounts from the 22nd of February and also another much older account. Uh, The first one of these is from 1847 and is a report on the Irish potato famine, which was the result of a devastating outbreak of potato blight which began in Europe in 1845. Of Ireland's population of 8 million, about 1 million died of starvation and another 1.5 million emigrated, mostly, to the USA. This is Elihu Burritt's account. We entered a stinted den by an aperture about three feet high and found one or two children lying asleep with their eyes open in the straw. Such at least was their appearance, for they scarcely winked while we were before them. The father came in and told his pitiful story of want, saying that not a morsel of food had they tasted for twenty-four hours. He lighted a wisp of straw and showed us one or two more children lying in another nook of the cave, Their mother had died, and he was obliged to leave them alone during most of the day in order to glean something for their subsistence. We were soon among the most wretched habitations that I had yet seen, far worse than in Skibbereen. Many of them were flat-roofed hovels, half buried in the earth, or built up against the rocks and covered with rotten straw, seaweed or turf. In one, which was scarcely seven feet square, we found five persons prostrate with the fever and apparently near their end. A girl about sixteen, the very picture of despair, was the only one left who could minister any relief, and all she could do was to bring water in a broken pitcher to slake their parched lips. As we proceeded up a rocky hill overlooking the sea, we encountered new sights of wretchedness. Seeing a cabin standing somewhat by itself in a hollow and surrounded by a moat of green filth, we entered it with some difficulty and found a single child about three years old lying on a kind of shelf with its little face resting upon the edge of the board and looking steadfastly out of the door as if for its mother. It never moved its eyes as we entered but kept them fixed toward the entrance. It is doubtful whether the poor thing had a mother or father left to her, but it is more doubtful still whether those eyes would have relaxed their vacant gaze if both of them had entered at once with anything that could tempt the palate in their hands. No words can describe this peculiar appearance of the famished children. Never have I seen such bright blue clear eyes looking so steadfastly at nothing. Well, we stay with children as we go back to around 1150 for William of Newborough's report of the strange green children. Nor does it seem right to pass over an unheard of prodigy which, as is well known, took place in England during the reign of King Stephen. Though it is asserted by many, yet I have long been in doubt concerning the matter and deemed it ridiculous to give credit to a circumstance supported of no rational foundation or at least one of a very mysterious character. Yet at length I was so overwhelmed by the weight of so many and such competent witnesses that I have been compelled to believe and wonder over a matter which I was unable to comprehend or unravel by any powers of intellect. In East Anglia, 
there is a village, distant, as it is said, four or five miles from the noble monastery of the blessed king and martyr Edmund. And near this place are some very ancient cavities called wolf pits, that is, in English, pits for wolves, and which give their name to the adjacent village of Woolpit. During harvest, while the reapers were employed in gathering in the produce of the fields, two children, a boy and a girl, completely green in their persons and clad in garments of a strange colour and unknown materials, emerged from these excavations. While wandering through the fields in astonishment, they were seized by the reapers and conducted to the village, and many persons coming to see so novel a sight, they were kept some days without food. But when they were nearly exhausted with hunger and yet could relish no species of support which was offered to them, it happened that some beans were brought in from the field, which they immediately seized with avidity and examined the stalk for the pulse, but not finding it in the hollow of the stalk, they wept bitterly. Upon this, one of the bystanders, taking the beans from the pods, offered them to the children, who seized them directly and ate them with pleasure. By this food they were supported for many months, until they learned the use of bread. At length, by degrees, they changed their original colour through the natural effect of our food, and became like ourselves, and also learned our language. It seemed fitting to certain discreet persons that they should receive the sacrament of baptism, which was administered accordingly. The boy, who appeared to be the younger, surviving the baptism but a little time, died prematurely. His sister, however, continued in good health and differed not in the least from the women of her own country. Afterwards, as it is reported, she was married at Lynn and was living a few years since, at least so they say. Moreover, after they had acquired our language, on being asked who and whence they were, they are said to have replied, we are inhabitants of the land of St. Martin, who is regarded with peculiar veneration in the country which gave us birth. Being further asked where that land was, and how they came thence thither, they answered, We're ignorant of both those circumstances. We only remember this, that on a certain day, when we were feeding our father's flocks in the field, we heard a great sound, such as we are now accustomed to hear at St. Edmund's, when the bells are chiming, and whilst listening to the sound in admiration, we became on a sudden, as it were, entranced, and found ourselves among you in the fields, where you were reaping." Being questioned whether in that land they believed in Christ or whether the sun arose, they replied that the country was Christian and possessed churches. But, said they, the sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are contented with that twilight which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen not far distant from ours and divided from it by a very considerable river. These and many other matters too numerous to particularise, they are said to have recounted to curious inquirers. Let everyone say as he pleases, and reason on such matters according to his abilities, I feel no regret at having recorded an event so prodigious and miraculous. Well, we come back to the 22nd of February, now in 1914, and George Bernard Shaw's own report of his feelings at his mother's funeral. Why does a funeral always sharpen one's sense of humour and rouse one's spirits? This one was a complete success. No burial horrors, no mourners in black snivelling and wallowing in induced grief. Nobody knew except myself, 
Barker and The Undertaker. Since I could not have a splendid procession with lovely colours and flashing life and triumphant music, it was best with us three. I particularly mention The Undertaker because the humour of the occasion began with him. I went down in the tube to Golders Green with Barker and walked to the crematorium, and there came also The Undertaker presently with his hearse, which had walked, the horse did, conscientiously at a funeral pace through the cold, though my mother would have preferred an invigorating trot. The Undertaker approached me in the character of a man shattered with grief and I, hard as nails and in loyally hardy spirits, rejoicing irrepressibly in my mother's memory, tried to convey to him that this professional chicanery, as I took it to be, was quite unnecessary. And lo, it wasn't professional chicanery at all. He had done all sorts of work for her for years and was actually and really in a state about losing her, not merely as a customer, but as a person he liked and was accustomed to. And the coffin was covered with violet cloth, no black. I must rewrite the burial service, for there are things in it that are deader than any one it has ever been read over. But I had it read not only because the parson must live by his fees, but because, with all its drawbacks, it is the most beautiful thing that can be read as yet. And the parson did not gabble and hurry in the horrible manner common on such occasions. With Barker and myself for his congregation, and Mamma, he did it with his utmost feeling and sincerity. We could have made him perfect technically in two rehearsals, but he was excellent as it was, and I shook his hand with unaffected gratitude in my best manner. At the passage, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, there was a little alteration of the words to suit the process. A door opened in the wall, and the violet coffin mysteriously but asked out through it and vanished as it closed. People think that door, the door of the furnace, but it isn't. I went behind the scenes at the end of the service and saw the real thing. People are afraid to see it, but it is wonderful. I found there the violet coffin opposite another door, a real unmistakable furnace door. When it lifted, there was a plain little chamber of cement and fire brick, no heat, no noise, no roaring draught, no flame, no fuel. It looked cool, clean, sunny, though so no sun could get there. You would have walked in or put your hand in without misgiving. Then the violet coffin moved again and went in, feet first, and behold, the feet burst miraculously into streaming ribbons of garnet-coloured lovely flame, smokeless and eager, like Pentecostal tongues, and as the whole coffin passed in, it sprang into flame all over, and my mother became that beautiful fire. The door fell and they said that if we wanted to see it all through, we should come back in an hour and a half. I remembered the wasted little finger, figure with a wonderful face and said, too long, to myself. But we went off and looked at the Hampstead Garden suburb in which I have shares and telephoned messages to the theatre and bought books and enjoyed ourselves generally. The end was wildly funny. She would have enjoyed it enormously. When we returned, we looked down through an opening in the floor to a lower floor close below. There we saw a roomy kitchen with a big cement table and two cooks busy at it. They had little tongs in their hands and they were deftly and busily picking nails and scraps of coffin handles out of Mamma's dainty little heap of ashes and samples of bone. Mamma herself being at that moment leaning over beside me, shaking with laughter. Then they swept her up into a sieve and shook her out so that there was a heap of dust and a heap of calcined bone scraps. 
and Mama said in my ear, which of the two heaps is me, I wonder. And that merry episode was the end, except for making dust of the bone scraps and scattering them over a flower bed. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? And just for something different as we conclude, here is a 1930 recording of a conversation between George Bernard Shaw and Albert Einstein. I have said that great men are a mixed lot, but there are orders of great men. There are great men who are great men among small men, but there are also great men who are great among great men. And that is the sort of great man whom you have amongst you here tonight. I go back 2,500 years. And how many of them can I count in that period? I can count them on the fingers of my two hands. Pythagoras, Ptolemy, Aristotle, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, Einstein. And I still have two fingers left vacant. <laughs> My lord, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the toast? Health and length of day to the greatest of our contemporaries, Einstein. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>